This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. for us. I'll finish this. They're in the hurry-up offense. Third down four. Foreman. It'll be fourth down. Kavanaugh will let it run down for one final attempt. He'll let the seconds tick off to give Miami no opportunity whatsoever. Timeout is called. Three seconds remaining. John Smith is on the line, and I don't care what's on the line, Howard, you have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy 
confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we have to take. Frank. Indeed it is. marked the start of a severe uptick in international conflicts, invasions, mass death, and war across the globe. First, it was Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, and then the Spanish Civil War. In 1937, Japan invaded China, and in the mid to late 1930s, Japanese forces had sporadic border clashes with the Soviet Union and Mongolia. And Europe, Germany, and Italy were becoming more and more aggressive. And then, on September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. The United Kingdom responded with an ultimatum to Germany to cease military operations. But this was ignored. So France and Britain declared war on Germany, and thus began World War II. A little more than a year later, during the deadliest conflict in human history, a global war that would result in 70 to 85 million fatalities, both civilian and military, a baby was born. John Lennon was born October 9, 1940, in Oxford Street Maternity Hospital in Liverpool, England, during a German air raid. Liverpool is located on England's northwestern coast, and is a bustling port city. The city has a reputation for toughness, culture, and diversity. John would be born to both of his parents, Julia and Alfred Lennon. Alfred Lennon was a merchant seaman, and John was named John Winston Lennon after his father's father, John, who went by Jack Lennon, and the prime minister, of course, Winston Churchill. During and after the birth, the German air raid raged on. This means bomb warning sirens going off and screaming. Can you imagine bringing a child into the world and your city, heck, the hospital you are in is under heavy threat of being bombed? The hospital was sending patients and guests to the cellar for better protection. They were also sending people home. They were putting the babies under the beds for better protection. John's mother, Julia, was for the most part a single mother. During John's childhood, he saw very little of his father, who went by Freddie most of his life, who went AWOL while serving in the Navy. After Julia's sister complained to Liverpool's social services twice, Julia gave custody of John to her sister. So for several years, John was brought up by his mother's sister, Mimi. There was some more time spent with living with his father and then his mother again, but ultimately John would be returned to Mimi and she and her husband would raise John for most of his childhood. In his early teens, he got his first guitar and spent many hours learning and playing. 
At the age of 15, Lennon formed a skiffle band called the Quarrymen. This named after his school, Quarry Bank High School. Well, and skiffle would be the type of music they would be playing. It's old-timey music. Then on July 6th, 1958, John and a young man maybe some of you have heard of, this is some guy named Paul McCartney, the two met for the very first time. Paul joined the band, and shortly after, Paul recommended that his friend George Harrison join the band as well, and soon the Quarrymen became an early version of the Beatles. Sadly, John Lennon's mother, Julia, passed away before John was 18. Julia Lennon was struck by a car while she was walking home. Now, this tragic event led to Lennon drinking heavily and often getting into fistfights and a lot of aggressive behavior. This behavior would continue for about two years or so. In May of 1960, the band was renamed the Silver Beatles, B-E-E-T-L-E-S, and of course later renamed again the Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. I think there has always been some debate on who named the band and why the unique spelling. I've heard different sources say different things. The story that I like the best is John said something like a flaming man or a man in flames appeared and spoke to him in one of his dreams and said, you'll be called the Beatles with an A. And so it was. Well, I think anytime that you have the biggest band in the world and the biggest band in history, there's a lot of folklore that goes along with a band of that size. If I were in the band, Captain, I would certainly be taking credit for having come up with the name. I'm just, whether I did or not. Even if you were Ringo, the last to join after they already named it the Beatles? I, I have no shot at being in a band like the Beatles, <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just making weird comments at this point. The Beatles' first concert was at the Cavern Club in Liverpool in March of 1961. The following year, in 1962... A man named George Martin signed the band to a record deal. Years later, Martin said he was not particularly impressed by the band's demo tapes, but he liked their wit and their humor. On August 23, 1962, John married his pregnant girlfriend, Cynthia Powell. This was a very simple, very small ceremony. After the ceremony, John and the Beatles left Liverpool to play a show out of town. Spending their wedding night apart was fitting, as it would set the pattern for their life together. John was away all of the time and was on the road when Cynthia gave birth to their son, Charles Julian Lennon, who was born April 8th, 1963. Yeah, and they're mainly signed because of their manager, Brian Epstein, and also Epstein would be the one that would kind of manage them on all their decisions. You know, one being, if you have a girlfriend or a wife, we don't answer questions about that. We just act like it doesn't exist. That same year in 1963, the band really took off and would go on to be one of the biggest and most popular bands in the world. Ever hear of the term Beatlemania? In 1964, the Beatles toured the United States of America for the first time, during which they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. I think this level of popularity in a band was something that people never seen before. The closest thing was possibly Elvis. 
and they were so huge that people actually called them the Four Elvises. John Lennon was no stranger to controversy. In 1966, he made an off-the-cuff remark in an interview with the Evening Standard, saying, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And I think this is where his honesty starts shining as far as he's willing to say what he actually believes. And I think one of the things that people get twisted is I think there was a part of him that was saying, look, we're bigger than Jesus, and I don't know if that's okay. I don't know if that's the way it should be. Yeah, I don't know that he was bragging, which I think some people took it to be that way at the time. I think we just have a situation where this is a young man who's making an observation and threw it out there, again, an off-the-cuff remark. Well, words have meaning and sometimes consequences, so this led to a Beatles boycott in the U.S., especially in the Deep South. And a quick internet search, you can find images of gatherings with bonfires and people, a lot of them teens really, burning Beatles albums. This seems like an overreaction, uh, especially looking back on it now. I remember, Captain, when I was 14, I had a newspaper route, a smaller route, and I took my whole first paycheck and I used that paycheck to purchase Ozzy Osbourne's Live and Loud album. And about the same time, I was going off to this this other church with my friends for evening gatherings or, and weekend gatherings. And mm-hmm. they did a lot of social activities for young teens at that time as well. So I was intrigued by the friendship and by this new church. And very quickly after going there, I get this flyer. We're having this get together where you can bring your rock and roll and heavy metal albums and we're going to burn them. And I thought I just spent my whole paycheck right. to buy this album that I'd, that I'd wanted for months. And I, I couldn't see the connection between that church and why I needed to burn the album. So that was the last social gathering at that church for me. And of course, in typical John Lennon, quick wit fashion, he had a remark for that as well, saying that if people wanted to burn the albums, they had to buy them first. Well, and what's funny to me about this is the early Beatles music was so pop and mm-hmm. was so friendly. There wasn't any controversy going on in the music itself. Right. I think it was just simply that statement. Again, this seems to be more of something that was going on in the deep south of America, where I've heard other people say that it was kind of a mixed bag of reaction for other parts of our country, where maybe mom or dad was on the side of, you can't listen to the Beatles no more, son or daughter. But the other was like, hey, this is just a a 25-year-old kid saying something silly he doesn't really mean it. It's not a big deal. It's just it's just music. Right, but this would change the Beatles forever because their touring was getting so out of hand. And at the time, we didn't have the technology to have these big sound systems. Mm-hmm. So these guys were going and playing in front of all these screaming fans, and they couldn't even hear themselves play. And then on top of that, because of these remarks, we had groups showing up like the KKK to stop 
these concerts mm. to protest, and also there was threats against their lives from groups like the KKK. And at a lot of these concerts, we have something that I think is just bizarre, but hey, there are big, big diehard fans out there for everything in this world. But you see, when you look back at the footage, you see teenage girls fainting and passing out in the audience. Yeah, that's normally what happens when I go to CrimeCon. <laughs> On November 9th, 1966, John met a Japanese-American artist named Yoko Ono. Her art was on display in London. Both John and Yoko were married to other people, but a connection was made, and the two were determined to stay in touch. In 1967, the Beatles manager Brian Epstein died of a drug overdose, and many marked this event as the beginning of the end for the band. And obviously, we're just going over some bullet points. I mean, the history and the details of the Beatles' career, lives, in the band and out of the band is so extensively researched because they are the biggest band of all time. So obviously we're not going to cover every single point of the Beatles career. In 1968, John Lennon's marriage was over. He admitted to Cynthia that during their marriage, he had many affairs and his friendship with Yoko was now becoming a romance. Well, and I just want to be clear on something because I think as somebody that is such a big icon like Lennon. One of the things that's overlooked is, you know, he was abusive towards his first wife. He was physically and verbally abusive. And that's not just coming from his son saying so, Julian, but that's also, he admits to that. John even goes as far to say, check out songs like Better on Sgt. Pepper's and he's talking about himself within that song and how he needs to uh, change and, and not do these things. And it's not an excuse in any way, but when your mother is taken from you, uh, from an off-duty police officer, when your father isn't around and you're raised by your aunt, you're going to have some kind of early trauma that can affect the way you behave in relationships. Well, and he's mixing that anger with drugs and alcohol as right, well. with uh, self-medication. In November of 1968, the band released the album titled The Beatles, which would also later be known as The White Album. Well, and I think this is one of the reasons why The Beatles became one of the biggest bands of all time. Because like I said, they're too big to tour. So all they could do is spend time in the studio. And they were doing this at a at a time where technology was catching up, so now you didn't have just like a four-track. You could put more like instrumentation, make something bigger. And they were able to create so many records per year because that's all they had to do. Well, speaking of which, Captain, it is believed that on August 18th, when the band got together collectively to record a song called The End, this would be the last session with all four members together in the recording studio. And then this is followed by John telling the group in a band meeting in September of 69 that he was leaving the band. It seems like this information did not make its way to the public. Who knows for what reasons, but it wasn't until 
the following year when Paul McCartney stated in an interview in April that the band was breaking up. Yeah, there's all these, again, it's such a big band. There's so many conflicting stories. But one of the things I think are, is interesting is they were doing a documentary. Their last record was going to be Let It Be. And they just thought, we're going to strip it down, go back to like the original rock and roll style that we're doing. And then they felt like it was disappointing. So they actually made a conscious effort to go back in the studio and re record Abbey Road, which is an amazing piece of work, and quit. So, yes, maybe John was the one that said, hey, I'm leaving, or maybe Paul was the one that said, I'm leaving first. But all four of the members knew this was coming to, to an end. And regardless of how it went down, you could see for months and months the four of them slowly going their separate ways. Yes, they were going their separate ways, but it was also interesting because they're setting out on a bigger business adventure together under Apple Music. Then in 1970, John Lennon's debut solo album, John Lennon slash Plastic Ono Band, was released. Soon after, Captain, we have Lennon and Ono who moved to New York City in August of 1971. I found one source that said that Yoko was taking too much criticism in the papers in London, and that was one of several reasons why the two chose to relocate. Again, because the band was so big, there was a blame game going on. Some people blame Paul McCartney for breaking up the band and a lot of people blamed Yoko Ono. A lot of people blamed Yoko Ono for breaking up John Lennon's first marriage as well. If it, it seems like if people did not like Yoko, they just blamed her for everything. And we know that Lennon's marriage was pretty much doomed because of his own actions for many years anyway. A thing that's not talked about a lot, because again, he has such this iconic symbol to him that people never want to talk about the negative stuff, but... During the last few years of the Beatles, he was a heroin addict, and so was Yoko. So the fact that that had a major play on on their business relationships, their personal relationships, and, and people putting blame on, on her because they were seeing their friend be a drug addict, basically. When the two moved to New York City, they immediately embraced the U.S. politics and became involved speaking. They were activists for a peace movement, and the couple released their Happy Christmas War is Over single in December of that year. John Lennon was not greeted with open welcome arms by everyone here in the States when he chose to relocate. In fact, it was the Nixon administration that took on what was called a strategic countermeasure against John Lennon's anti-war, anti-Nixon propaganda. This would lead to the administration and some involvement with the FBI as well to surveil John Lennon, to keep tabs on him. It's even suggested that they were tapping, wiretapping his phone, and they were threatened by Lennon. Why would, would Nixon be threatened by somebody like John Lennon? Well, there's going to be an election coming up. And they were afraid that this guy who is involved in politics, he's, he's vocal, that he has the 
ear of the American youth and that he could drive, if he wanted to, he could drive masses of people to the left to join the Democratic Party and vote that way against Nixon in the upcoming election. That is a very scary thing to see that this guy all by himself has more control and more influence than the president of the United States. Well, and this is during the whole peace, love, hippie movement. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing this to a lot of artists. They were having the FCC come down hard on shows that lean left, uh, artists that lean left. But also during this time, him and, and Yoko aren't getting along too well. And, and he's having his, what they call the lost weekend. But even before that, we have the Nixon administration. What they're going to try to do, Captain, is they don't want Lenin to stay in the United States. Right. So you can't set up residency here, and we have our reasons. This would lead to several years of legal battles with the immigration authorities. And the very basics of it are this. They did have reasons to not allow him to stay. One, he had overstayed his welcome, so to speak, when he first got here. You have to start filing for things and applying for citizenship and, and the right to stay, and which he didn't do so in a timely manner. And that all seems a bit arbitrary, especially when we're talking about an individual that they didn't seem to want to be here. Second of all, there was an arrest that took place back in London, and they would often cite that as, well, that's further reason that we don't want this individual to be in our country. He couldn't obey the, the laws of his own country before coming here. And I think you pointed this out well, and so have several others, that the simplest reason what Lenin believed and what is probably correct is that he was outspoken for peace and against the war. They didn't want that to have an effect on the upcoming election. And then we have the situation where, where you're right, him and Yoko Ono are not getting along. And a lot of that is again, some of John's self-destructive behavior and his, well, irresponsible and unfaithful behavior. And this leads to the lost weekend, which was about an 18 month period of time where the two were were separated from about roughly 73 till 1975 yeah and what's interesting is yoko actually <laughs> basically told uh hooked john up with may ping and they basically had a relationship for a couple years i believe they got back together at the elton john concert that Elton John had in New York. Basically, Elton John played on a John Lennon song and said, if it ever got to number one, you're going to have to come out and, and do a live performance. And that'd be like John Lennon's first live performance in years. And that would be when Yoko and John would get back together. Yeah, so you have this period of, of roughly 18 months and it's all kinds of debauchery, most of it taking place out in L.A. with other friends and other stars as well title it the lost weekend the two get back together john and yoko ono and they are going to have a baby together on october 9th 1975 and this is a very unique thing here 
We have Sean Toro Ono Lennon, who was born on October 9th, 1975. This shares the same birthday as his father, John Lennon, also born on October 9th. Well, this is going to create a big shift in John's life. He's going to remove himself from the spotlight. He's not going to write any songs. He's going to be a stay-at-home dad and raise his son like he did not do with his first son. Yeah, on his 35th birthday, John Lennon would step away from music and he would decide to become a father and be a real father for the first time. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. ask you about writing. I mean, writing 10 songs in a week, as I believe you did, we mentioned it earlier, uh, for the Walls and Bridges album, that seems to me to be an awful lot of pressure. How exactly do you go about writing, John, these days, or, or both of you, in fact, as a combination? Which of those two is the more important? Looking back at it, whenever I comment about writing, I always seem to have been suffering, whether it was writing day in the life or whatever, it's some kind of suffering, so I always seem to have an intense time writing and thinking this is the end and nothing's coming and this is dumb and this is no good and all that business. So not writing for the five years, which I didn't, I didn't pick up a guitar or anything, and not trying to write, not making an attempt to write or anything like that. So what you said about Walls and Bridges applies to double fantasy. I was in Bermuda and Yoko was in New York doing some business. I was in Bermuda with Sean and the nanny and that kind of stuff. And then when we made a tentative decision to make a record, I didn't have any material, then suddenly it all came to me. All the songs that are on Double Fantasy all came within a period of three weeks mm. in, in Bermuda after five years of nothing. Not trying, but nothing coming anyway. No inspiration, no anything. Then suddenly, boom, 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 boom. See, he's a very fast writer because it's an inspiration. It's just 
come through him. So it's just a matter of writing it down almost. When we did Double Fantasy, I was in New York and he was in Bermuda. We were sort of communicating on the phone. I would say, well, what about this? And then he would call me maybe four hours later and say, what about this? We'd be singing to each other. And that was a dialogue. It was very strange. And mm. we went through sort of like a paradoxical feeling of, well, half resisting. Well, I don't want to hear a song now. I'm very tired. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I've heard yours. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, let's hear it then. You know, that sort of thing. I went through that. And then we were going to go to the studio. And because of that, I felt we're both big-headed people. And so maybe we're going to fight like crazy over remix or this and that. You know, because we both have very definite ideas. And I'm sure that John felt that way, too. John must have felt, well, can we really work together? But somehow... We were so well, and we were all prepared to so maybe have a difficult time, but don't you think Yeah, so? it was the easiest session I've ever done, I think. Five years is an awful long time. What sort of mental discipline did it involve resisting picking up a guitar? Well, it wasn't a matter of resisting. The first half a year or a year, I had this sort of feeling in the back of my mind that I ought to, I ought to. And I'd go through periods of panic because I was not in the enemy or the billboard or being seen at Studio 54 with Mick and Bianca. I mean, I didn't exist anymore. I got a little fear of that. Would come like a paranoia and then it would go away because I'd be involved with the baby or involved with whatever other business that we were involved with. But that only lasted about nine months and then there was suddenly like a... Oh. It just went away. And I realized there was a life after death, you know I mean? There was a life without it. Did you enjoy and that realization? It was great. It was like, oh, my God. And I, I would sit around thinking, what does this remind me of? What does this remind me of? I thought, this reminds me of being 15. I didn't have to write songs of 15. I wrote it if I wanted to, or I played rock and roll if I wanted to. I didn't have to do it. I, was, I didn't have some imaginary standard set up by me or some group of critics or whatever. In other words, back to the days before the pressure yeah, started. so I sort of got back to that, and then that's when I suddenly could do it again with ease. The most enjoyable thing for me, apart from putting them on the tape when you first put them, is the inspirational in the spirit. Because when the songs really come and you're not sitting down like a craftsman writing, I can do that. You know, you want a song about bananas for a movie, I could do that. <laughs> okay, you know, I'm quite capable of turning it out like that. I wouldn't enjoy it so much, maybe, but I could do it on that level. But my joy is when you're, like, possessed, like a medium. <clears throat> I mean, I'll be sitting around and it'll come in the middle of the night or the time when you don't want to do it, you know. That's the exciting part. So I'm lying around... And then this thing comes as a whole piece, you know, words and music. And I'm thinking, can I say I wrote it? I don't know who the hell wrote it. I'm just sitting here and this whole damn song comes out. Mm. So it, you're like driven and you find yourself over on a piano or a guitar and you put it down because it's been given to you or whatever it is that you tune into. There's John Lennon discussing his break from music and then the rejuvenation of his music career, which took place in 1980. Before we get to that there, Captain, let's give a little more background here. We have the Lennons, John and Yoko, who were living at the Dakota, which is also known as the Dakota Apartments. This is a building located on the northwest corner of 72nd Street and Central Park West in Upper West Side of Manhattan. They were subleasing an apartment from actor Robert Ryan for a brief period of time. Now, Ryan passed away in 1973. And after that event, 
the Lennons wanted to purchase the unit that he was living in. Well, the board is a little particular at this apartment complex, the Dakota, and they weren't so hip to the idea of the Lennons living there, purchasing an apartment in the beginning. That might have had something to do with John having trouble getting residency here in the United States. Eventually, that goes away, and what we have is John and Yoko, they purchased five different apartments at the Dakota. Two of them were living quarters for John, Yoko, and their son together, Sean, and they had a unit that was purchased for Sean's nanny and her husband so that they would be in the same building, on call, they could tend to Sean's needs whenever it was necessary. And they also purchased two other units. These were simply used for storage. Yeah, John had a lot of endeavors when he talks about all the other business things going on, while some of these business things were real estate transactions. And to show you how picky the board has been over the years for the Dakota, first off, we should probably point out that this is a very old building. I mean, the Dakota was constructed between 1880 and 1884, and it was a historical landmark even well before Lenin's death. Now, the board denied living quarters to people such as Gene Simmons from Kiss, Billy Joel, and Carly Simon. Now, some other famous people that have lived there throughout the years are John Madden, Rosie O'Donnell, Joe Namath and Judy Garland. What I always find interesting about this time period is when his friends say that they talked to John, how happy he was uh, staying at home. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that he wasn't there, obviously, for his first child and to to try to do it correct and be the guy he wanted to be uh, and that he was able to do that for his second son, Sean. Yeah, there's nothing more fulfilling than being a good father, a good husband. And I also think some of that, too, is a certain level of sobriety that he did not partake in for many years of his life. And you have what is an angry young man who is fueling some of that anger with drugs and alcohol, and you can't start to let go or work through that anger and grow until you start to let go of that drugs and alcohol. Well, and also being one of the most famous people in the world. I mean, that has to be... I'm sure there's uh, a burden that comes with that as well, yeah. Right, right. And I, and then I also think as an artist, um, having a situation where you're supposedly the best, so then your competition is yourself, so you always have to top yourself. And then after the breakup, there's a competition between the members. And I think... There's something nice about just going, hey, I'm going to let all that go. And like he says in the interview, it's like when it's all over with, there's actually a life after that. Right. And one thing that I find fascinating is the clip that we played there. You can hear Lennon in his own words saying, look, there was not a resistance, an effort put forward on my behalf to not create music. There was simply a lack of creativity and a lack of anything coming through, a lack of that that energy that I once had. And he describes it in many ways 
as a job, but where he's going to find inspiration and that renewed sense of creativity, it will be from a trip that he takes to Bermuda in the summer of 1980. Now, something very interesting happens to Lennon on that trip. He's aboard a yacht. This is like a 43-foot sailboat with a crew. Well, they're out there, and the seas get rough, my friend. Mm -hmm. The storm is coming in, and this is a pretty powerful storm. The crew is experiencing seasickness. John Lennon is not. He is the only one that can really pull it together and hold the wheel and try to keep the craft steady. Well, let's go back a little bit because he wasn't part of the crew. He was basically cooking for the crew, saying, hey, look, guys, I'm not. I'm not the manly guy. I can't do this stuff, but hey, I can cook for you. Well, like you said, they all get sick. And then the guy that's saying, well, I'm not, I'm not manly enough to take over the ship has to take over the ship. And for several hours, he has to fight his way through the storm, sailing this boat through the storm there. And he said this was one of the most profound experiences in his entire life, if not the most And it was that moment, followed by his stay in Bermuda, that was really the inspiration that the light switch just clicked right back on for him. And all this stuff just pouring through, all of this good music just pouring through. But I also think there's probably a little bit of fear, too. Like, look, I'm being a good husband. I'm being a good man. I'm being a good father. Can you do both? Can you be a great artist and be all those things? I also think that there's a bit of the weight of the situation. When you're out on that boat, there's a possibility that you and the rest of the guys are not going to survive that storm. Right. There's a certain fragility to life that becomes very, you become very aware of. And maybe that was a bit of a kick in the pants for him to get him back on his horse again. In October of 1980, we have another special event in John Lennon's life. He turns age 40, and on that same day, his son Sean turns age 5. And Yoko surprised both of them with having a, you know, where you have the plane and they write in the sky. She wrote a message to both of them that says, happy birthday to John and Sean love Yoko. They were able to view this out their apartment window. In November of 1980 is when they would release the album Double Fantasy. This is John Lennon's return to music, and the album is taking off. It very quickly went gold. Well, at this time, too, he's doing a lot of interviews. He did, did a big, famous uh, Playboy interview and one for the Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, on the evening of Friday, December 5th, 1980, John Lennon spoke to Rolling Stone editor Jonathan Cott for more than nine hours at his apartment in New York's Upper West Side. And this interview was so long, nine hours, that's a long Long time to be sitting down and have a discussion. It continued on at the Record Plant Recording Studio. And that brings us up to December 8th, 1980. 
That morning, John Lennon and Yoko Ono woke up in their apartment as they did most mornings. They went out and had a nice breakfast. They typically would go to a cafe or someplace within walking distance of the Dakota for their breakfast or maybe hop in a limo and go grab something to eat out in the town. While out that day, John decides to get a haircut. This is important because he has a photo shoot that they will be doing at the couple's apartment at the Dakota. The photo shoot was scheduled for 11 a.m. on that day, on Monday, December 8th. Rolling Stone magazine photographer Annie Leibowitz arrived at Lennon's apartment for the photo shoot. This is going to go with the interview that he had just done three days prior. And the plan was to run this interview with some photographs for the interview, as well as a photograph for the cover of the upcoming issue of Rolling Stone magazine. This is going to one fly off of this, the newspaper stands for the magazine, great for the magazine, but it's also further promotion for the double fantasy album that has recently been released during this photo shoot. Annie Leibowitz, she thought that, you know, what would be a good idea? I would like to snap a photo of John and Yoko both in the nude, right? Let's get something where people were out there talking, spread the word, do something controversial a little bit. It's going to be good for the magazine, good for the album. Well, Yoko says, I'm not real comfortable being fully nude for this photo shoot. So what we have is what would become the the Rolling Stone magazine cover was a Polaroid shot, a single Polaroid shot of Yoko Ono lying fully clothed on her back. And you have John Lennon, who is completely nude, and he's kind of holding his wife in a way that he's almost in like the fetal position. Yeah, it's become one of the most iconic pictures of John and Yoko. At 1 p.m., San Francisco radio producer Dave Sholin arrives at the apartment to conduct what will become John Lennon's last interview. This is about a three-hour session where John talks. And the thing is, when you look back at this interview, as well as the one that was conducted three days prior, there are some kind of haunting statements that John makes only because we now know these are the last interviews. Right. But in this interview with Dave Sholin, John says, quote, we're either going to live or we're going to die. I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that's a long time. I believe that John felt a great deal of admiration towards the 60s because that was his heyday. That was his pinnacle. And then dealing with the breakup of the Beatles the competition between members, this lost weekend. I think he looked down upon the 70s and thinking, okay, well now things are better. We're getting things together. The 80s are going to be a really special time. One of the quotes from the December 5th Rolling Stone interview that I wanted to point out too is John says, quote, give peace a chance, not shoot people. For peace. All we need is love. I believe it. End quote. After the interview, 
at 4.30, John and Yoko were scheduled to go to the recording studio. They had a session scheduled where they were going to record a track that they were working on together. Now, when John and Yoko first go outside of the Dakota, they observe that their ride is not there. They would typically travel by way of limousine. And this seemed to upset John a little bit. He didn't like to wait around, especially not out front of the Dakota, because as we already pointed out, we got famous and interesting people that live there. So you get these people that gather and hang out and they're looking to see somebody famous. And many of these people are looking to catch a glimpse of John and Yoko in particular, as well as try to maybe snatch a, an autograph from John while outside of the Dakota. So sh the Dave Sholin, who did the interview, he offers a ride to John and Yoko. And I think he was a little surprised when, when they decided to wait around for the limo that was, was arriving late. Now, during this time, we have a young man who approaches John Lennon and he hands John a copy of the double fantasy album wanting his autograph. John signs the young man's album and he signs it. John Lennon, 1980 gives it back to the young man. And now he's going to get his ride. They're going to go off to the studio while he is writing or signing his autograph on the cover of the double fantasy album, somebody snaps a picture which captures John Lennon looking down at the album cover and the young man standing just over his left shoulder, looking down as John is signing the autograph. We would later know the man in the picture with John Lennon to be that of Mark David Chapman. I'll post all these pictures on our Instagram at true crime garage and also on Twitter and Facebook. At the recording session, things seemed to go exactly the way that John and Yoko wanted. They loved the outcome. They loved the result of their hard work at the record studio. And before they leave the recording studio, John makes sure to get a cassette of what they just recorded because he and Yoko would like to listen to it again and again. They're very pleased with the outcome of this. Then they're going to be picked up by a limo at 10:35 from the music studio to head back to the Dakota. At 10:48 p.m., the limo stops just outside of the Dakota's gateway, and Yoko climbs out of the limo followed by John, who's carrying a tape recorder and several cassettes. John walks past the man that he had signed the autograph before, just hours before. Mark David Chapman, and he passes by the man and he moves on. At this point, Mark Chapman, and there's some debate over this captain, if Chapman said anything or if he didn't say anything. Most sources that I found seem to say that he said Lennon or Mr. Lennon right. to which John may have started to turn, but it didn't matter because by this point, Mark Chapman has already put himself in a, a stance where he is ready to shoot at John Lennon. He gets into a combat stance, pulls out a gun from his coat pocket, and fires 
five shots at the most famous man in the world. John Lennon was hit with 38 caliber hollow bullets at close range. Four of the five shots would hit Lennon and Lennon would stumble up a set of stairs into the building's office where he collapsed, falling face down. The night watchman is in this same office and he sees all of this go down. So he hits the alarm, which is going to immediately summon the police. And within just a minute or two, we have the street in front of the Dakota is now full of cop cars and sirens going off. Very quickly, Mark Chapman is cuffed. What Chapman did was as soon as he shot Lennon, apparently there was somebody that said something to him like, what are you doing? Do you realize what you've just done? Get out of here. Just get out of here. And Chapman says to that person, where would I go? Mm-hmm. and I've seen reports that say that he set the gun down and then he also took off a, his coat. He had on a big coat, right? and Chapman took off this coat apparently for the reasoning of he wanted police to know right away that he was not armed, he's not holding a gun, he's not concealing a weapon, and he starts thumbing through the pages of his favorite book, The Catcher in the Rye. He's arrested and cuffed without incident, to which we have the police officer, when the police walk up to him and approach him, Mark Chapman says to the officers, I'm sorry I ruined your night. And one of the cops says, what do you mean ruined our night? You just ruined the rest of your life. Right. Mark Chapman tells the officer that there's a big person and a little person inside of me. Today, the little person won. And again, when he's asked if he knew what he just did, do you know what you just did? Mark Chapman replies, I killed myself. I'm John Lennon. And they went inside the gate there, and then all of a sudden they heard five, six shots, and that was it. Four cops pulled John Lennon out and put him into the back of a police car, and his mouth he was bleeding from his mouth, and he, he, it was a terrible sight. Mr. Chapman came up behind him and called to him, Mr. Lennon, as he arrived at that doorway. And then in a combat stance, he fired, he emptied the Charter Arms 38 caliber gun that he had with him, and... Uh, shot John Lennon. The news spread quickly. Within minutes, fans, the curious, and reporters are at the Dakota apartment building waiting for news from Roosevelt Hospital. John Lennon was brought to the emergency room at the Roosevelt site, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, this evening, shortly before 11 p.m. He was dead on arrival. The first reaction, disbelief. Why would someone stalk and kill John Lennon? And why now, when Lennon was just coming out of five years of seclusion? Almost immediately, a vigil of stunned fans gathered at the Dakota.
Thank you so much for joining us here in the garage. If you need more True Crime Garage, check us out on the Stitcher app. All of our old episodes are there for free. And we also have a bonus show called Off the Record, and that's on Stitcher Premium. See you back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't leave. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.